Texans at the center of an insurrection in Washington. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state for however many years running now. I think five or six at this point. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at quorumreport.com and standing sentinel watching over the news landscape as always is veteran political reporter at the Houston Chronicle, Jeremy Wallace, and uh, he's also at HoustonChronicle.com. How are you, sir? Oh, no, I mean watching. You know, no, no, I'm not standing watch. I'm hiding under a bunker. You know, you Should don't know be. where the where's the next attack. You what? know, where's it coming from? What a, what an ordeal yesterday. Um, on and on and on. I think it only took. 14 hours or so for something that should take about 30 minutes, which is the uh, certification of the Electoral College. Do you want to just tell people what that should look like, how that should go when it, in normal times? Oh, my. That it, it's usually the most boring event yeah. ever. You know, I've worked right. in D.C. quite a few times you know, at, at different points in my career, mm-hmm. and this is usually you know, such a boring day to the point where you can't convince editors to run your story, you know, just because it's, it's, it's mundane. It's like it, the only thing they do, they literally are supposed to be charged with opening the envelopes, counting the votes, and saying, yep, we counted them, they're good. <laughs> and then they go home. That's it. It shouldn't be any more than that. Instead, it uh, looked a lot like what a transfer of power might look like in a third world country yesterday. Let me prove it to you. Listen to this. It's from a British television report about the riots that broke out in Washington amid this debate over whether President Trump's second term in office should happen, right? Because you got these Republicans who are arguing over that. Listen to the protesters and just the sense of panic that you heard in Washington yesterday. USA! For four years, we have witnessed turmoil in America, but nothing quite like this. The pro-Trump crowd fought with the police, trying to break through their lines, intoxicated by the unlikely prospect of reversing America's election outcome. We watched as the standoff continued for at least an hour. Tear gas canisters were fired from the very stage on which Joe Biden will be inaugurated. But for Capitol Hill police officers, this was a losing battle. And in the end, a losing battle for President Trump's supporters. I did monitor the entire thing until about, I think, 2.30 our time here, uh, 2.40, something like that, a.m., Overnight, I considered it sort of a stretching exercise for the legislative session because you do have days <laughs> like that uh, during the session. Uh, but why are these people rioting? Why are they going so nuts? Well, there are answers. We don't have to guess about that, Jeremy. You've heard the way that President Trump has talked about this. Ever since Election Day, he has said they're going to fight and fight and fight yep. to try to keep the White House. This was him just a few days ago uh, in Georgia when he was supposed to be rallying support for two Republican uh, senators who did lose their races. They're not taking this White House. We're going to fight like hell. I'll tell you right now. I repeat, that's from a rally for senatorial candidates. Okay. Uh, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton spoke at a rally in D.C. yesterday, just hours before all of the violence broke out. I want you to know that Texas fights. We fought. 12 straight lawsuits related to mail-in ballots, related to signature verification, federal court, state court, Travis County, Austin, Houston. We fought. We won every single one of those cases. And because of that, Donald Trump won Texas by over 600,000 votes. Well, at least that is not in dispute, uh, that the, the Trump did win Texas. Uh, I would point out right now that if you were listening to the arguments made by House Republicans who were trying to overturn the election, one of their key arguments was that the election laws of various states were changed without the consent of the legislature. Yep. Did that happen anywhere else that you can think of? Hmm, let me think. Um, mm. I think uh, one state with a T at the beginning. Yes, right. <laughs> T is for Texas. That's right. Uh, Texas Congressman Louis Gomert from Tyler, Smith County. He was one of those who had tried to sue over this thing. And how many lawsuits were there? I think more than 60 yeah. that have all been tossed out at every level in state courts, federal courts, all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. None of these things have worked out. And Gomert, if I understood this right, 
he was suing the vice president, uh, Mike Pence, essentially trying to force his hand so that Pence would go ahead in his role and reject these electors from the swing states. Listen to what Gohmert said about his lawsuit being tossed out. Uh, he was appearing on Newsmax, which is a right-wing television station, perhaps falsely labeled as Newsmax. Uh, and he was talking about this. He says um, that you might see uh, riots, you might see violence in the streets because of what happened in the courtroom. Bottom line is, the court is saying, we're not going to touch this. You have no remedy. Uh, basically, in effect, mm-hmm. the ruling mm-hmm. would be that you got to go to the streets and be as violent as Antifa and BLM. The ruling actually was that he didn't have standing to bring such a lawsuit. The yeah. ruling was yeah. not that people should take to the streets. So when people hear that, well, maybe that encourages some folks who are already you know, prone to doing that kind of a thing. A lot of folks will argue that you can't hold these people accountable for the words that came out of their mouth and tie that directly to the actions that people took at the Capitol, which were completely outrageous. I mean, you watched all of that unfold yesterday. I would say this uh, to counter that. It would be like saying you can't blame somebody for an explosion at a gas station because they were just ashing their cigarette on the gas nozzle while they're filling up their tank. What could go wrong here? It's a, it's an explosive situation, right? And so for people to keep the, you know, just pouring fuel on the fire is not good. You talked with Representative Dan Crenshaw, Republican from Houston, and as I heard at least part of this interview, he was not holding back at all in talking about some of the other Republican members. Strong comment. All of the members who called for everybody to come and to fight and to make their last stand, all of those members were scattered like cowards while the Capitol Police actually had to do the fighting. Yep. That's pretty strong, Jeremy. What, what was the rest of that conversation like? Yeah, it was very, you know, it was in that same mode where he was very, like we were talking about here, uh, upset with the members of Congress who were sending almost like bat signals out there for or people to come to, yeah. you know, Washington D.C. and protest. There was one member of Congress uh, from you know, from Georgia who wrote, "This is our 1776." You know, uh, you have other members of Congress who were writing, you know. Come to D.C. and fight. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. they were you know, either doing it on social media or on uh, on some of these TV shows, Newsmax. You know, there were so many people calling and firing this up, and then they act surprised that all these people are out there. And, and uh, one of the points that you know, Crenshaw made is like, you know, when people are using military terminology mm-hmm. and uh, telling people to fight, yeah. it's one thing when you're doing it in a ballroom in Palm Beach County, Florida. You know, versus when you're doing it on the, basically on the steps of the United States Capitol, yeah. and there's a thou- thousands of people there. It's like it, the the incitement uh, and the excitement that the crowd was getting as Don Trump Jr. is saying, "We're coming for you." You know, we're coming for you. He right. literally s- said that to Congress. And, it's and like, saying what that did to this, re- yeah, what to did the crowd members. do? They went mm-hmm. down the hill and to go to get the members of Congress. So you know, Crenshaw was very critical. Like it was funny, it, but it's. <laughs> You gotta make clear, Crenshaw wasn't opposed to what people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley were doing mm-hmm. in the U.S. Senate. He, he he didn't vote for it, you know, for their you know, efforts to to wipe out Biden's victory. Yeah, but you know, he said you know that, that was fine, but he didn't see them inciting people to come to you know D.C. for the fight of a lifetime. It's like where like January sixth wasn't supposed to be about some fight for a lifetime. It was just yeah. a uh, like we were talking about, a, a rudimentary, you know, boring, you know, quick vote and everybody it, was supposed to go home. Yeah. But people like Louis Gohmert and some of these other members made it sound like this is your last chance for the survival of the country. Yeah, so what did th- people do? Right. And right. We saw it all over our televisions all day yesterday and this morning in the newspapers uh, with the Trump incited mob, you know, heading to the Capitol. Those were what the headlines looked like today in major daily newspapers all across the United States of America. And I would say there are gradations to it. I mean, uh, look, these Republicans are still in so many ways um, and they will be uh, going forward uh, beholden to voters who do believe that the election was stolen. Right. A lot of them. And that's going to stay with them for a while. I think the question is, and I saw, I think it was Van Jones on CNN, who I think he framed up the question very well when when they were watching uh, all of this unfold at the Capitol. He said, um, is this the beginning of something? 
or the end of something? Is it the yeah. beginning of a movement going forward where people are still angry about this forever, and that's what Republican primaries and some general elections are about in two and four years? Or is this just the last gasp of uh, you know, President Trump's hold on a certain number of people? I could actually argue it either way. As far as what Cruz was doing, the junior senator from Texas on the floor of the Senate made this argument that the election still might not be settled even after all of those lawsuits and the recounts and everything else. We gathered together at a moment of great division, at a moment of great passion. We have seen and no doubt will continue to see a great deal of moralizing from both sides of the aisle. But I would urge to both sides perhaps a bit less certitude. For Ted Cruz to admonish people for moralizing and <laughs> speaking with certitude, that did give me a chuckle. Uh, he says that everyone should slow down because democracy is in crisis. Now, why is that? Recent polling shows that 39% of Americans believe the election that just occurred, quote, was rigged. You may not agree with that assessment. But it is nonetheless a reality for nearly half the country. So the argument isn't necessarily that the election was rigged, Jeremy. It's that lots of people think that it was rigged. And why would they think that? Did those people all come up with that on their own? Or is it because of what we were talking about before, with all of these people continuing to say something that is not true? You heard Senator Romney, Mitt Romney of Utah, the former GOP nominee for president. He said the way to respect those people is to tell them the truth. Uh, which I think when um, when I was watching the Senate proceedings, he got the loudest applause of anybody for saying that. Now, uh, Cruz says it's not just Republicans who think that the election was stolen. 31% of independents agree with that statement. 17% of Democrats believe the election was rigged. He said he wanted a 10-day emergency audit, and that would be a deal where you could have uh, some senators, House members, maybe some Supreme Court justices, as had been done at one point in the past. They could take a look at it and figure out if there was any election fraud here. Now, I want to talk in just a second about whether Senator Cruz is backing up on all this and maybe rethinking all of it, but we should mention first, do you remember in 2016, Cruz was accused of election fraud in Iowa? Do you remember who accused no. him of you remember who accused him of that? Was um oh, it was Donald Trump when they were both running for the Republican nomination for president. Check out this flashback, and since it's a celebrity president, Jeremy, I went and pulled the report from Inside Edition. It's getting really nasty. What kind of people do we have running for office? No, it's honestly Really, really dishonest. Donald Trump is back at it, launching you know insults at Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz didn't win Iowa, he stole it. He's accusing Cruz of committing fraud. During Iowa caucus, Cruz put out a release that Ben Carson was quitting the race, Trump tweeted today. Many people voted for Cruz over Carson because of this Cruz fraud. Cruz has apologized for the press release, saying a staff member made a mistake. Jeremy, I remember talking to somebody on the Carson campaign at that time, someone from Texas who was very unhappy with Ted Cruz. Of course, they had a bruising primary back in 2016. Trump won, and Cruz, in the meantime, as we've mentioned before, has had to do a lot of work to try to um, you know, establish or reestablish a good relationship with that part of the Republican base, which I think after that primary probably grew as a percentage of the Republican base, right? I mean, I think, you know, leading into the Trump presidency, there were still some of those who were calling themselves never Trumpers. There were still a lot of those who said they still wanted somebody like Ted Cruz to be president instead. But what I heard from a lot of Republicans over the first one, two, maybe three years of it or so was that even if they still didn't really like the style of Donald Trump and the constant tweeting and the constant controversy and everything, they started to like the results they were getting from President Trump. All of those conservative justices and judges he's putting on the federal bench, the tax bill and all those sorts of things. And you had a lot of Republicans, um, you know, some of those conservative thought leaders who started to make the argument that, look, any social damage, if you will, that's going to be done by Trump has already been done. And they yeah, like that, the and they like the conservative results that they're getting, and so you know Cruz, who wants to run for president again, he's basically said that. I think he has said that. Um, 
there's no path to a Republican nomination without those people, right? Well, yeah, exactly, and 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 you're right. Like, I, you know, I was with him on the campaign trail in 2018, and that's almost exactly what he said. Like, do, I remember him being. Uh, we were in Brownwood, Texas, and him saying, "Do I, you know, do I agree? You know, do I want to take his Twitter away? You know, do I agree with what he's putting? Absolutely. Like, there's problems with that. I wish he would just put it away. But look at the results. Look at the you know judges we're getting. You know, mm-hmm. looking. You know, look at you know conservative principles that we think you know he's supporting, and so like. That whole message, like, you can see you know, Ted Cruz needs to win that group of people over. Mm-hmm. Uh, he de- you know, how do you, you know, win those people over when, you know, the primary was so vicious and, you know, lying Ted Cruz came out of <laughs> Donald Trump's mouth? Right. You know, it's just like, and so somehow Cruz is in this, this awkward position now, I think, where he's sitting there trying to appeal to this base of Trump supporters, mm-hmm. but he's put himself now in this weird you know, category of being the leader of this group who was trying to not certify Joe Biden's election. Yeah. It's like, does that give him more power within the Trump <clears throat> base or does it just weaken his ability to win other Republicans? Yeah, yeah, that's and, a good question going and other, forward. And other folks in a, in a general election, I mean, you know, once you get through the primary, then you'd have to win in November. And if you are remembered as the guy who basically helped to, and I'll say it this way, might be controversial, but helped to incite this riot at the Capitol, this is not something – I think, you know, there have been so many moments that people may forget about uh, in the Trump presidency and the Trump era if you will. But I don't think the violent insurrection at the U.S. Capitol is going to be something that people are just going to forget about completely. No. no. I, right. his, history is going to look upon people like Ted Cruz right. and Josh Hawley in a certain way going forward. Right. How What that will be, mm-hmm. you know, in a couple of years from now, I, people are just going to remember that they were giving the speeches right before it started. You're right. Um, and, and as you said, it should have been a ministerial act. They should have just done that and left after about 30 minutes. Instead, it became this time for choosing. Um, of course, the Democrats in all this, they were wondering why in the world are we even doing this? Of course, they were standing up and making arguments against the objections. What I found, and, and they have uh, you know, multiple reasons for doing that. One, as we pointed out, there is no evidence of fraud, so there's no real reason to be objecting to these things. Two, they're getting their way, right? The, yep. the Democrats won. Biden won. Harris won. They're going to be in the White House. And you had Mike Pence, the VP to Trump, say that after the certification at 2.30, 3.30 in the morning, whatever it was. If I seem a little groggy, that's why. I was watching the, <laughs> I was watching the whole thing. But, you, but I did want to see Mike Pence say that, right? At some point, I was invested in it. I just wanted to see the moment in history. But we got there, okay? But this thing is over with. It's done. So the Democrats are over there making their arguments that these objections are silly, and they, sh- you know, that that's what you expect. Here's what you might not expect. You know who was opposing Cruz and Josh Hawley vigorously on this? Well, it was Cruz's former chief of staff, Republican Representative Chip Roy of Central Texas. And as you know, Jeremy, he is no liberal. No, right, not, not at all. <laughs> in his comments to the House, he felt the need to prove that first. My constituents at home in Texas are genuinely upset, I say to my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, at a constant barrage of those who wish to remake America into a socialist welfare state, efforts to attack our institutions, tear down statues, erase our history, defund our police. We've seen the debasing of our language. We teach our children that America is evil. We destroy our sovereignty and power cartels. We attack our Second Amendment. We've destroyed small businesses through lockdowns. We divide ourselves by race, and we can't even agree that there is man and woman, and we extinguish the unborn before they even have a chance to see daylight. I am going to um, show you that in a legislative proceeding, the greatest thing that can happen is seeing um, someone you didn't expect rise to the occasion. The person who just said all those things is about to get thunderous applause from Democrats. Ready? You ready for this, Jeremy? Okay. None of that has anything to do with the election, none of the stuff he just said. But believe me when I say he needed to say all of that to establish his uh, conservative bona fides, if you will, uh, before saying this about his Republican colleagues. Now, many of my colleagues were poised this afternoon to vote to insert Congress into the constitutionally prescribed decision-making of the states by rejecting the sole official electors sent to us by each of the states of the Union. I hope they will reconsider. 
I can tell you that I was not going to, and I will not be voting to reject the electors. And that vote may well sign my political death warrant, but so be it. I swore an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States, and I will not bend its words into contortions for personal political expediency. Representative Roy also appealed to the Republican lawmakers who were there by citing what has not been done by state-level Republican officeholders across the country. Not one GOP statewide official has formally called on us to change. Not one law enforcement organization, state or federal, has presented a case of malfeasance. History will judge this moment. Let us not turn the last firewall for liberty we have remaining on its head in a fit of populist rage for political expediency. When there's plenty of looking into the mirror for Republicans to do for destroying our election systems with expansion of mail-in ballots. I may well get attacked by this, but I will not abandon my oath to the Constitution. And I will make clear that I'm standing up in defense of that Constitution to protect our Federalist order and the Electoral College, which empowers the very states we represent to stand athwart the the long arm of the federal government. I submit this respectfully and humbly. Representative Roy there, uh, his time uh, being cut off by the Speaker, Nancy Pelosi. You heard the Democrats uh, applauding for what he was saying there. Um, And I think this is going to go down, as you said, a moment in history. People are going to judge this in different ways. Um, You had a larger contingent of Republicans in the House where he was speaking, uh, siding with those objectors who said that we need to have a commission and go back and look at this and make sure there was no fraud in the election and all of that. In the U.S. Senate, it was a very small group. It was only six, right, who were the ones who voted for the uh, objections. Before that, I think it was a bigger – before the riots and everything broke out, it was a bigger group. Yeah, it was, was going to be 12, was, I think. Mm-hmm. And that number diminished as uh, people were rushing into the Capitol, uh, breaking into offices, you know, putting graffiti and looting the Capitol, stealing things out of the building and all of that. Um, the, the political moment – um, cause some of these people, and the, the moment uh, you know just unfolding in front of their eyes, the violence and everything else, cause some of them to change their votes. Now that's not the norm, right? I mean, yeah. usually they know how they're going to vote. They go in there and they do that. Um, so it is pretty extraordinary that that many members would say, "Actually, I'm not for this anymore." Uh, after what has just happened um, in the Senate, it's easier for those Republican members to do that, I think, to vote against uh, what Cruz and Holly are trying to do, because the senators, they represent entire states. Yeah. And the senators represent people who voted for Trump and for uh, Biden, right? Um, you know, in Texas, you've got millions of people. Uh, in fact, some of them, according to the election results, who voted for Biden and then John Cornyn, right? And, it, and so, and Cornyn was a no on all of this. Uh, but the House members... They represent these districts that have been carved up through redistricting to uh, make it easy for a Republican to win. And on the Democratic side, the same thing happens. Um, But those districts that they represent, those communities are rock, rib, solid Republican districts. And legislatures now have a choice uh, because this is a redistricting year. Are they going to continue to give them districts? that require them politically to take stands like they were taking yesterday, which are only about serving a Republican base, or do they give them districts that are, you know, maybe still Republican, but a little more moderate where some of these guys, Jeremy might not feel that they have to vote that way when the question is one that becomes so partisan and only about the head of the Republican party. Well, you hit on a very key point. And I think I'm quoting you when I say Texas is still a primary state. Right. Yeah. You know, the, if there was one thing that came out of you know, 2020 uh, election results was that, you know, these Republicans still have to worry about their right flank far more than their left flank or you know, yes. what independents are going to throw at them. Mm-hmm. And so you know, do we think all well, I think it was 18 House members who voted not to certify the election? Do we think those 18 people are all certain that Donald Trump really won the election? Probably not. But in those districts that they're going back to, they know if they just get ahead and vote that way, there's enough cover to make sure the election doesn't get overturned. But mm-hmm. they can go and be on record to keep that 30 to 40 percent Trump base from challenging them in a primary. And, you know, Chip Roy, you heard him say that in his, you know, basically in his response. He, you know, somebody from the Trump world is going to be upset with him. And mm-hmm. maybe somebody will try to run against him. Sure. It's like he knows he's invited that right side to now, you know, force him to have to have a primary, yeah. you know, and, and 
maybe everyone who voted, you know, uh, you know, for the certification, Dan Crenshaw, you know, maybe he gets a challenger, Mike, Michael McCall in Austin, you know, he, he, he was another one of them. Uh, yeah. You saw Kevin Brady, you know, uh, in the Woodlands, all those guys have opened themselves up to, you know, Trump world being <laughs> upset with them. And yet yeah. they still did it. Absolutely. And, you know, when the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell made his statements before the riots broke out, in fact, he, I think it was uh, his speech was the last speech in the Senate right before um, everything started to just go south yeah. uh, at the Capitol. The way it was uh, reported was that as soon as he was wrapping up, fear started to, uh, you know, uh, creep into the Senate chamber uh, because they heard that there were people who were outside who had breached the Capitol and were coming in uh, as protesters. Um, when the majority leader was making his comments and saying that it was the most important vote that he would cast in his career, and he's been there for almost 40 years, he was saying it was not about any one person. It was about the system. Um, and I think he and McConnell, and that's not some magnanimous thing. Let me, let me put it this way. Nobody's naive around here. Yeah. <laughs> McConnell and Cornyn and Senate Republican leadership, what they are doing is they are defending the system through which, for the last generation, Republicans have had their best path to the presidency, which yep. is through the Electoral College, right? Anything to undermine that, which, you know, even having that debate yesterday undermines the Electoral College. Undermining that undermines the ability of their party to win the White House. Right. So yep. McConnell's thinking long term and guys like Cruz and Hawley are thinking about their more short term ambitions of wanting to run for president coming up in two and four years. So we will keep an eye on this um, going forward. It's definitely, as you said, an issue that may come up in some of these primaries. Um, coronavirus numbers, Jeremy, I know you usually have the numbers uh, readily at hand. I'll give you a second if you need to grab them. Uh, but as those numbers have been going up, I was watching your Twitter feed. The uh, DSHS commissioner, Dr. John Hellerstedt, told some county judges in a private conversation that the government has maxed out on what it can do. Now, I can get into specifically what he said in just a second. But what do we look like right now as far as all this? Well, uh, the number of hospitalizations in Texas, uh, we've actually doubled the number of people with lab-confirmed COVID-19 in Texas hospitals since Election Day. Oh, wow. Um, and, and right now, it's like it's shocking how bad it's been. Like, you know, on December 20th, we had just gotten over 10,000 people in hospitals. Mm -hmm. uh, three days later, or no, seven days later, we were at 11,000. Yeah. You know, three days after that, it was 12,000. Now we're approaching 14,000 people uh, oh, in wow. hospitals. Uh, in Texas, and that's putting a huge strain, particularly in ICU beds. It's like, mm -hmm. I've never seen us with fewer than 600 ICU beds available statewide, but yeah. we're down into the, uh, into the, you know, 540, I think is the last number I saw. And wow. so th there's a real strain right now, you know, in hospitals everywhere in Texas, as you know, I know everybody's excited about having this vaccine, mm -hmm. but it's not getting out fast enough to, you know, stop this trend line right now, which is horrific. If, if this trend, you know, again, since December 20th, to go from 10,000 to 13,000, you don't have to be a mathematician to think, well, if we do this another, say, 14 to 28 days in this, you know, trajectory, we're going to be out of beds, period. Yeah, right. You know, I don't understand what we're supposed to do. Yeah, and all the restrictions that were put in place early in the year in 2020 uh, were about lim about making sure that there was enough hospital capacity to deal with all this stuff. And then, of course, those restrictions started being lifted by the state at the state level. Remember, they – and I'll repeat it again. I'll, I'll say it until I'm blue in the face. Uh, the local officials, the county judges and mayors were dealing with it at first, and at some point around April – you had the governor assert that only the state, and specifically his office, has the power to make these kinds of decisions about the restrictions. So, you know, as far as business closings, business restrictions, capacity in different businesses, wearing masks, all that sort of stuff, only the governor could make those decisions. Now, here's what we had reported out at Quorum Report, and I will preface this by saying that I have been really frustrated, and I know that you have too, because, look, Texas government is always pretty opaque You've got to yeah. really, you, you really do some digging to figure out what's going on sometimes. Um, and during the pandemic, that was made worse as the pandemic worsened so many things and magnified so many problems. Um, basically, they started running state government by conference call in March of last year, so, something like that, you know, around that time. They started holding all these conference calls of 
lawmakers and the governor or the governor and state agencies, state agencies and you know county officials. And um, we would try to figure out what was said on these calls because these are not public. These are private conversations. Yep. You know, the, the numbers were not being given. You know, the dial-in information was not being sent to journalists or members of the general public. These are just conference calls for the governor and, and folks who are in power. Okay, And if people don't think that I'm going to spend every last minute that I can figuring out what was said on those calls, and they don't know me very well. Um, so one of these calls happened in the last couple of weeks, and we reported it out at quorumreport.com after we obtained the audio, which I'll play for you here in just a second. Uh, the commissioner of the Department of State Health Services, Dr. John Hellerstedt, one of the top doctors for the state, right? he told these county judges that, quote, Government has reached the limits of what it regulates in controls and licenses in the fight against the outbreak of COVID-19. Now, that might sound surprising to some people, given the numbers that you just laid out, Jeremy. Like He's, he's saying that they can't do anything else, essentially. Uh, Hellerstedt told county officials from Fort Bend County, Montgomery County, Colorado County, Wharton County, Brazoria, Waller, and Austin counties on this conference call that no further restrictions will be coming from Governor Abbott's office from his administration. And the best thing they can do, you know, outside of doing any kind of government restrictions is to try to politically change the hearts and minds about behavior. Now that's not what you might expect from a medical doctor as far as what's the prescription, change people's hearts and minds. What's the prescription doctor? Why don't you change people's hearts and minds? You can, you can get, you can sense, you know, how ridiculous that sounds. This was at the time and I pulled these numbers from your uh, Twitter feed, Jeremy. At that time, the state was reporting a record 11,992 people in Texas hospitals with lab-confirmed COVID. And as you just said, it's gotten only worse from there. Uh, let me uh, play this for you. This is from the conference call. Dr. John Hellerstedt is telling the – and it's a, it's a longer piece of audio, but I, I want people to hear it. Um, he's telling them that politics is the answer. You won't hear him say these specific words in this, but it was in the call. He says, politics is not a four-letter word. He said, God bless it. It's how we get things done. He's saying you've got to change those hearts and minds. Listen to this. The truth is, it really, I think, this is my personal opinion, I think government's reached the limit of what it regulates and controls and life is. Uh, the rest of it is about um, uh, getting to people's hearts getting to what they believe, motivating them to understand um, that this can lead to the loss of, of life uh, and the loss of health. Um, and I lost a very dear friend to COVID back in the summer. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's horrible. It's a horrible disease. It's a horrible way to die. Um, and, you know, we're seeing, uh, the, it, it's still the case that most of the deaths older folks my age and older um, and folks with underlying medical conditions like me um, uh, but at the same time you know 30 folks 45 year olds are getting it they're getting sick they're, it's affecting their hearts it's affecting their lungs their brains their kidneys and we don't know how long how much of a, a permanent uh, scarring basically uh, might take place uh, with this um, that, that, that's a scare message, and scare messages don't really work on the, on the broader public, but I think it's something, again, that we as leaders uh, can know um, in, in our hearts when we speak out um, and, uh, and, and ask folks to cooperate. You know, we, our society, we, we live in a society that is by the consent of the governed, and that's the way it should be. Um, and so we all know that we can only lead people to where they want to go. Um, and that our job really is to be persuasive about where, where that is. Kind of breathtaking. He's saying that the only thing that you can get people to do is what they already want to do. So all around the state, would people rather wear a mask or not? What do you think people's attitudes in Texas is about that, especially when the governor for months had said that the government should never be able to force you to put a mask on your face? And then one afternoon, as we reported here, he just drops a YouTube uh, that says that actually you are – forget all that. You are going to have to wear a mask or it's a $250 fine. Um, on this same call, as we reported at quorumreport.com, one of the county judges who was on that call um, from Colorado County – 
uh, Ty Prouse is the uh, is the county judge, and he's you know this is not a Democrat. They they would not elect a liberal Democrat as a no. county judge in Colorado that's, County, that's Texas. Happening in there? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, not in Sealy, uh, in that area in Columbus. Um, the, the the fact is that um, this judge said that when you have mixed messages coming from the top of state leadership all the time, in his small county where they don't have the resources to have a sophisticated PR effort to try to change the hearts and minds of people, um, that is just compounding the problem for them, Jeremy, in these small places. And you've done a lot of reporting on places like Amarillo and Lubbock and the areas in South Texas, El Paso, where they had these outbreaks and they were the real hot spots. Um, and I imagine that for them in those same places, they might say something similar, you know, that they were not getting the kind of backup from the state that they need to be able to deal with these outbreaks in their communities. Yeah, it, it, it's, you know, boy, how many times do we say this? But it turns out Texas is a really big state. And there's yeah. 254 counties. It's just like, and are you going to tell Throckmorton County, you know, that it's up to them to change the hearts and minds of people in that? No, no. It's like, right. that's, that's just like a silly, like, possibility. It's like, it has to be something more forceful, you know, to get people to, you know, change their approach. You know, they, it'd be like saying, like, well, we can't enforce speed limits. So what's the You're point? Right. You know, it's let's a- just encourage people to go a safe speed and we can't go any further. You yeah. Know? I think that Hellerstedt is talking uh, about the political attitude of the leadership, which that's a decision. He's saying that in their opinion, there's nothing else that they can do. That's that's a policy decision, right? And that's something that's being uh, decided by the governor, the governor's office, and the agencies that work for the governor. Uh, And we will see if the legislature decides to do anything different uh, in this five months that they're about to start next week if the legislative session gets going. Um, The only check on the governor's power during this whole thing happens for the next 140 days after they gavel in next week. Um, And so do they want to do some things different? Do they want to rein in the governor's powers? Do they want to uh, do some things differently? When it comes to the response to COVID-19, it's important for them and for Texans to understand from that candid conversation that Dr. Hellister was having with those county judges that that is the opinion of state leadership in the governor's office right now and in his administration is we can't do anything else. We're not going to do anything else. And think of it this way, kind of like you said, what kind of leadership is it that only thinks that you can lead people where they already want to go? Yeah. Right. I mean, um, I think, um, you know, in a lot of cases leading a lot of times, it looks like you're heading out there by yourself at first. You, you, you have to point a direction for the way that people uh, need to go. The Capitol, as I mentioned, uh, will be filled with lawmakers starting next week. Um, 150 members of the House, 31 senators. The speaker will be elected and uh, the lieutenant governor will be there. And Jeremy, if you want clear and concise information about what COVID protocols are in place, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You, well, we've been waiting for this for months. Um, you know, it's not like they didn't know that, uh, you know, coming up in January, there would be a legislative session in which they would fill people uh, into this building, uh, which is, you know, the capacity is about 6,000 folks, something like that. And that's without people just, you know, standing on each other's shoulders. Uh, so that 6,000 would be without any social distancing really going on. Um, if you think about... The members of the legislature, that you know, the representatives and the senators, their staffers, um, the troopers who keep everybody safe, the people who clean the building at night, all those sorts of folks. I think you get to about a thousand people, yeah. something like that. Uh, so that would leave room for what, maybe a thousand more, twelve hundred more. I'm not really sure of the number, but as far as what kind of capacity they're going to allow, they weren't real specific about that. But they did say they would have capacity limits. There were some hard feelings in the capital community this last weekend uh, because the State Preservation Board, uh, which is the agency that oversees the capital, you know, they, it, it, they do exactly what the agency sounds like. They preserve the capital. That's what they're there to do. Uh, and they do a really nice job of it, by the way. This is not a criticism at all. Uh, but uh, there were some staffers, the people who work in that building, who were very upset about the fact that the details for how the capital was supposed to be opened on Monday, this past Monday, that those uh, were not given to anybody until 8 p.m. on the Saturday night before the Monday when it was supposed to open. And they didn't even get a government email about it for the people who work in the Capitol. 
it was sent to those of us in the press who, of course, reported it out. Uh, we reported it at quorumreport.com. A lot of our audience is in uh, the capital community. So the building's requirements, let me ask you a question. Do you think you have to pass a COVID test? Do you think you have to be negative to walk into the building? <laughs> Depends on who you ask. <laughs> well, um, according to the State Preservation Board, which oversees the whole building, the answer is no. Now, they did point out that there's free rapid testing at the north entrance to the Capitol, but there was no requirement in the protocols that you even have to take that test. And I'm not sure if you test positive that they would keep you out of the building. I, there's no, not really any, really any clarity about that. If anybody wants to add clarity, they can. Uh, in the meantime, the Texas Senate and Lieutenant Governor Patrick's office put out some protocols for the Senate – a couple days, well, I think the next day on, on Sunday, and they said uh, for the Senate that they do have their own testing set up on the east side of the Capitol, that if people want to attend the first uh, opening day of the Senate uh, in, in the session, then they have to go through that east side rapid testing. Um, on the House side, I'm not entirely sure uh, exactly what they're going to do just yet. Uh, the House and Senate will have to adopt their rules. And that will dictate whether people have to wear masks on the floor, how many people can be on the floor of the House and Senate, exactly where the media has to sit and all that sort of stuff. Although the Senate did put out uh, some requirements about what uh, the media is going to have to do, uh, including media not being able to attend Senate hearings, which I think is going to be – that might turn into a point of contention, uh, Jeremy. Uh, oh, yeah. But I'm, I'm <laughs> saying all this – people don't need to write all this down or remember it. I'm saying all this to point this out. Even within the same building – which is the seat of state government. They don't have one set of rules for how they're dealing with COVID-19. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's going to be a total patchwork. Uh, and already I'm hearing that, like, you know, at least some of the senators have been, told, been telling me that uh, this is going to mean, like, you know, fewer bills, fewer hearings, mm -hmm. uh, and a slower pace than we're even used to typically for a January or a February in the Texas legislature. That's it's right. usually a pretty slow walk up to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. You know, but this year is going to be even slower, you know, as we try to kind of, you know, not race against the vaccine, but almost, right? You know, where mm -hmm. you're trying to hope, you know, as many people get the vaccine, say, by March to yeah. where you can maybe have a more regular looking session, mm -hmm. you know, start yep. evolving. But for that first month or so, I wouldn't be surprised if the, the Senate gavels in, you know, they, you know, set up their rules and says, goodbye, we'll see you sometime yep. in February. Yeah. And in fact, uh, about a month ago, we had reported at quorumreport.com that there was a, 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 basically it was a list of um, mileposts for the session. Uh, that they may do something like what you're talking about, where they would come in, adopt their rules, uh, and then the senators may leave for as much as 90 days or two months. Yeah. Um, and the only thing that would happen in the meantime from a legislative standpoint is the Senate Finance Committee, which is in charge of writing the budget uh, on the Senate side, that they would start holding their meetings. Yeah. And on the House on the House side, you could see something very similar where they, they come in, they have to elect a speaker. Uh, that's the first thing out of the gate. Uh, they have to adopt their rules. Um, and uh, they may also just say, hey, we'll see you in March, um, which yep. – for the biorhythms of a legislative session, that's usually the case, that they don't do much anyway in the first uh, two months. Uh, under the Texas Constitution, uh, they're not allowed to pass any legislation that the governor hasn't designated as emergency items during that first 60 days anyway. What they kind of miss out on, though, and I, this is part of the legislature that gets down into the weeds, but it does matter, um, for those first two months, you've seen it, Jeremy, where they kind of stand around on the House floor, the Senate floor, and they congratulate each other, and they talk about, you know, how great, uh, you know, um, uh, loving – it's like Loving County Day, or it's, uh, you yeah. know, the Lubbock Chamber of Commerce is in the gallery today, and they're, you know, honoring them, or, or it's Angelina County Day, or whatever. And, or it's a, some school district is there, and they're honoring the superintendent and the school board and some of the kids who are there, stuff like that. All seems like just feel-good, happy stuff. While that stuff is going on, the new members of the legislature and the members who are more veteran are walking around and getting to know each other. Yeah. And they're developing relationships. So they stand there and they talk about, you know, not just public po – I think people have this in their head that they just come down here and just talk about public policy and what bills they're going to pass and that sort of stuff. Well, they do talk about those things, but they also stand around and talk about things like, 
Oh, how was your kids' soccer game last night? Did y'all win? Um, what was uh, what was going on with that charity uh, work that you work on? Uh, you know, how's your wife? How's your husband? That sort of stuff. And they, and these are Republicans and Democrats who are doing this, getting to know each other as people, which creates a more intimate environment, and it makes the legislature move more like a like a cohesive organism because yep. they know each other, right? Yep. So if you have people who don't get to do that for two months. And then, let's say the vaccine does start to take hold, we get closer to what they would call herd immunity, and they can sort of start again in March to do real legislative work, they will still have the ability to have the same amount of time to work on legislation, um, you know, roughly. Uh, But they won't have had the time to build the same kind of personal relationships. One of the things that's going to be very contentious when they talk about these rules is whether they can vote remotely, whether they can vote somewhere other than the House and Senate floors, because that is proposed. And there are a lot of, especially Republicans, who are very opposed to that. Uh, because Look, what if they have to have a senator or a House member who's quarantined because they've been exposed to coronavirus? Yeah. Should they have to, should, do they have to go to the floor of the House? Do they have to go to the floor of the Senate? Or can they vote from their office? Well, for one thing, that opens up this argument. If they can vote somewhere other than where they usually vote, in person, does that mean that voters could vote from home online in elections? Why should they not be able to if the members can vote from somewhere other than where they usually have to vote? That's one thing yeah. that it opens up. Conservatives are very upset about that, concerned about that, I should say. Um, and then the other thing goes to what I was talking about with the intimacy of all this. When you have legislation making its way through the process, you get a lot of promises or different people would say, I'm going to support your bill or I'm against your bill or whatever. Um, and they take it very personally, Jeremy. There's a reason that, you know, this specific, let's say Briscoe Kane from Harris County files a bill and he's got his name on it. That's his bill, right? That's his work product. Yep. They take that very personally. Do people sign on to his bill as co-authors? They take that personally. What I'm telling you is they take everything personally. So if somebody says, I'm voting for your bill, and then they vote against it at the last minute. They decide there's something they don't like about it. Um, if you're standing on the floor and you watch them do it in real time, and you, you're look, it's it's legislating is eyeball to eyeball a lot of times. They yes. see them do it, and then they betray them on a promise. I thought you were going to vote for my bill. I've seen them walk over to the other guy's desk and say, "What the hell was that? You said you were going to vote for my bill," and they'll have it out. And sometimes it's also like an enforcement thing. There may be other people who are trying to get to a member and say, I wish you would vote no on that, while this other person has been promised that they're going to vote for it. And if they have to stand there on the floor with them and they see them do it, they might think about voting no, and then they vote yes. Like All of this happens in real time in front of each other, and to vote remotely would rob that from them. And I think that there's going to be a real push against that, it, even down to the point, Jeremy, of I've heard this as a – as one of the solutions possibly is that they might do it a little bit more like they do in the U S house in Washington, where they'll have a vote be open and they can come in and out on the floor and there might be four or five or 10 members of the house who can come onto the floor at a time and vote on legislation, vote yes or no from their desks. But do you know how much that would slow down those votes? Yeah. No kidding. When they're, I mean, usually I went back and looked at how much legislation gets passed. I think in the last legislative session, um, I'm going to be a little bit off in these numbers and somebody's going to text me that I was not right. Uh, but in the last couple of legislative sessions, the numbers of bill, the bills that were filed, it was like 6,600. And before that, it was 7,300, something like that. You know, They'll pass thousands of bills in a regular legislative session because they can vote yeah. that quick on those bills, right? It, on the ones that are non-controversial. Then they'll slow down and and they'll debate different things. Um, but it's quite possible, as you said, you know, fewer bills. I mean, they could go from thousands of bills passed down to hundreds of bills passed instead. Maybe they pass only four or 500 bills, something like that. I've heard some capital veterans say that that's completely possible. But I'll tell you, in our jobs covering all this, Jeremy, it's going to be, and this is one of the reasons people will want to tune in every single week, as if they don't already, it's going to be an evolving thing as far as how they actually handle this because i can tell you they have not had the real uh i think nitty-gritty conversations just yet about exactly how they're going to do it when so many people are still worried about coronavirus even though the vaccine is coming out yeah and you get one member who becomes you know seriously ill 
uh, you know, look, you know, you look around the country, there are legislators and, you know, who have died, you know, from this. We just had a congressman elect, you know, die, right. mm-hmm. you know, it's just like, it's like, it's not like they're immune to this, you know, and even people who have gotten the vaccine are finding out that some people still get the virus. You know, Kevin Brady, the congressman from the Woodlands, mm-hmm. said he got the vaccine and yet he's, you know, announced right. this week that he has COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... You know, there's just no certainty in any of this stuff, and uh, and to say this is going to be challenging, maybe the most, you know, biggest understatement of the year, right? You know, where he's just like, you know, just trying to figure out how do you get 181, you know, elected officials to agree to one set of rules <laughs> on COVID. You yeah. know, so you, like you said, you can have members who don't want to wear a mask. You can have members who, you know, won't, you know, want to be anywhere near the others, though. You know, who want to vote remotely because, say, they're 75 years old, you know, and, you know, they have a pre-existing condition, you know. Do they want to be, you know, in a situation where they're around other people from all parts of the state? You know, mm-hmm. maybe not, you know. you coming from a hot spot. Imagine coming from Laredo. Laredo is having one of the worst you know, crises right now, uh, it's like almost 40% of their hospital space is taken up. You know, mm-hmm. for the members coming from that region, it's like, I don't know if you want to be like sitting next door, <laughs> you know, as we're arguing about, you know, whatever piece of legislation that's out there. Well, and think about this. Uh, they come into Austin each week uh, for a few days, especially at the beginning of the legislative session. Then they go back to their districts. It's typically yeah. the way they do it, you know, for three and four day weekends. And what if they have people who are not from hot spots coming to meet people who are from hot spots at the Capitol, creating a super spreader event, and then going back out across the state and taking it back to their communities? Yeah, exactly. That's going to be a real concern, and we will watch it all unfold together. All right, that's enough show for this week. You think so? I think that fills it up. Okay, all right. Now the plugs. If you enjoy the show, you know you do. You've listened for about an hour now. Uh, You should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you listen to your favorite podcast. Jeremy's work appears each and every day at HoustonChronicle.com, where you should be a subscriber, and we would love to have you subscribe at QuorumReport.com as well. Just go to QuorumReport.com, click subscriptions. We will get you signed up, and we'll see you right here next week after the legislature has gaveled in. (laughs) 